This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Moving On Despite Our Trials. In the first half, Gene R. Cook shares his address, The Love of God, Suffering Tribulation in the Redeemer's Name. Then in the second half, Jennifer Pastenbaugh speaks on When Your Bow Breaks. What a privilege it is to be here at Brigham Young University today and to be able to address all of you wonderful students. Whether you know it or not, you convey a great spirit and are having and will have a great impact upon the world. As a result of the training you receive here in your personal righteousness, you truly are, as Jesus said, a light on a hill. Sister Cook and I have been privileged to have all of our children attend BYU six of whom have graduated, two others who are preparing to do so. At least they hope. (laughs) I hope we are all very appreciative of the First Presidency who feels strongly about education and provides such a wonderful institution, even the Lord's University. This morning I would like to address a topic entitled The Love of God, Suffering Tribulation in the Redeemer's Name. Above all else, I desire that you know that God loves you. He loves all of his children across the world, and in spite of the very difficult problems being encountered worldwide these days, as well as in your individual lives, the love of God permeates all. During a terrible war between the Lamanites and the Nephites, where thousands were dying on both sides, Alma recorded, Many had become hardened because of the exceeding great length of the war and many were softened because of their afflictions, insomuch that they did humble themselves before God even in the depth of humility. Our trials can either end up hardening our heart or humbling us. How true the saying that suffering in life is inevitable, misery is of our own making. In other words, because of the plan that we all agreed upon in the premortal life, we're going to suffer whether we want to or not. However, if you can find how to suffer that tribulation in the Redeemer's name, you'll bear it well and perhaps even do it with an understanding, happy heart. Let's look first at some catastrophic kinds of trials and then later perhaps at some personal trials we all face. Some weeks ago, a devastating tsunami took the lives of more than 160,000 of the Lord's children. How does one understand an event such as that? and even see the Lord's hand in developing additional love and trust in Him as a result of that event. Many do not understand God and His purposes as reflected in the following statements by current writers. Quote, In the aftermath of cataclysm with pictures of parents sobbing over dead infants, faith-shaking questions arise. Where was God? Why does a good and all-powerful deity permit such evil and grief to fall on so many thousands of innocents? What did these people do to deserve such suffering? Another, quote, How do people of faith make sense of the senseless? The answer is we can't. The problem of suffering in this world has never been fully understood and cannot be completely explained. One last one, a reverend said, The disaster has shaken my faith. A member of another Christian church said it had made him hate God. 
He now says that if God existed, this tragedy would have been prevented. Certainly none of us as Latter-day Saints should be unduly surprised by prophesied last-day events such as these. The Lord said, There shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, the waves of the sea heaving themselves beyond their bounds. I bear testimony that often in the midst of suffering, trials, and afflictions, and discouragement, that those very circumstances tutor us in developing increasing love and trust in God. Consequently, what a great blessing those trials are. My purpose here today is to not focus so much on worldwide events, but more so on individual suffering and trials, although the principles we discuss can apply to both. If I could catalog suffering and trials among young people of your age, it would probably include some of these following entries. Quote, I've prayed fervently for something, but it's never occurred. Why? Won't God help me? Why did my father have to die and leave my mother and us alone? Why am I struggling with this chronic illness that makes me miserable most of the time? Why am I not worth anything? It seems that others feel that way about me. And I do, too. I feel worthless. Brothers and sisters, is not that kind of suffering very real for many of us and very intense as well? Here are some more. You can relate to this one. I've prayed and fasted for an eternal companion, but no one has come. Why did he break up with me, says another? Things were going so well, my heart is broken. We thought the purpose of marriage was to have children. We've prayed for years and none have come. I failed another algebra test. Why am I so dumb? <laughs> I'm so discouraged. I'm not sure where my life is going. I feel surrounded in darkness, depressed, and have little or no hope. Where will the money come from for our apartment or our food or our books or our insurance or our car? Maybe one last one, why am I so heavy? They say I'm big-boned, but the truth of it is I'm just downright fat. Well, we could add a lot more suffering to that list, could we not? Once a struggling missionary asked me, Elder Cook, when will this happiest two years of my life be over? <laughs> a suffering friend once said, I've been keeping the commandments and trying to do what is right. Why did they even call this the plan of happiness? Well, those are some very real questions, are they not? Unlike some in the world who do not understand the purposes of suffering, Latter-day Saints, thanks to the restoration of the gospel in large measure, do understand. Why then do even the righteous suffer? The righteous suffer, but the Lord delivers them. Quote, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. After much tribulation come the blessings. You cannot behold with your natural eyes for the present time the design of your God concerning those things which shall come hereafter. For after much tribulation come the blessings. It's interesting to note that there would be even more suffering if it were not for the righteous in the land. If it were not for the prayers of the righteous, said the Lord, who are now in the land, 
that you would even now be visited with utter destruction, but it is by the prayers of the righteous that ye are spared. Will you right now, those of you here listening to me, humble your heart in this very moment and prayerfully consider these additional words I'm going to quote from the Lord. Do it with the Spirit, and I'm confident they will humble your heart, strengthen your faith, and increase your love for Him in spite of some of your current trials. Here are some of the Lord's answers as to why He allows such suffering. Suffering is to prove oneself. Therefore, be not afraid of your enemies. I will prove you in all things, whether you will abide in my covenant, that ye may be found worthy. Suffering creates a witness against sin. And the Lord does suffer that they may do this thing, he said at the time when the saints were being cast into the fire in Alma's day, that the blood of the, of the innocent shall stand as a witness against them. Suffering teaches obedience. And my people must needs be chastened until they learn obedience, if it must needs be by the things which they suffer. Suffering teaches patience and faith. Nevertheless, the Lord seeth fit to chasten his people. Yea, he trieth their patience and their faith. I love this next one. Suffering assists one to repent and to be forgiven. Verily, thus saith the Lord. And to you whom I love, and whom I love I also chasten, that their sins may be forgiven. For with the chastisement I prepare a way for their deliverance in all things out of temptation. And listen to these last words, he says, And I have loved you. Isn't it wonderful the Lord's motive in allowing that the Lord's motive in allowing suffering truly is love? And he will even prepare a way for our deliverance? Truly he has loved us during these serious trials in spite of what some may think. It's evident, brothers and sisters, that the Lord will use tragedy and sorrow to help humble his people and thereby cause them to repent and be saved. Listen carefully to this. He loves you more than your being perfectly happy day by day. And thus he will do what is required to purify you so you can return to him. Suffering can occur from the Lord hedging up your way. I will not succor my people in the day of their transgression, but I will hedge up their ways that they prosper not, and their doing shall be as a stumbling block before them. Suffering brings forth righteousness. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them. Be patient in suffering. Be patient in afflictions, for thou shalt have many, but endure them. For lo, I am with thee even unto the end of my days. The Lord did strengthen them that they could bear up their burdens with ease, and they did submit cheerfully and with patience to all of the will of the Lord that they should suffer no manner of affliction, listen carefully to this, no manner of affliction, save it were swallowed up in the joy of Christ. Aren't those profound answers clarifying why the righteous suffer? 
We of all people ought to stand and humbly bear testimony of how God's great love can be found in the suffering of individuals as well as nations and be able to explain to a large degree why much of that is occurring. Of course, no man knows all the purposes of God and thus does not fully understand the full purpose of suffering. That is only known by the Lord. On a personal note, I think in my own life of what a challenge my wife and I had when we were first married and went for nearly five years without having children, even though we fasted, prayed, and had numerous priesthood blessings concerning that challenge. We suffered much. However, in time, after adopting our first son, seven others came naturally, and we now stand as the parents of eight children plus 21 grandchildren. Does the Lord fulfill his promises? He does. Be patient. Wait upon the Lord. He does love us. Here's another personal example showing the uniqueness, the uniqueness of the Lord's gifts. All of my adult life I've suffered with very difficult health problems, some of which have been life-threatening. What lessons were taught in the process of all those years? I believe they could not have been learned in any other way. They have helped me to be more Christ-like. Truly the Lord knows the end from the beginning and will tutor, correct, mold, and even refine you in the furnace of affliction. He will do so until he has accomplished his purposes in purifying you, sanctifying you, and helping you draw closer to him. These kinds of gifts from the Lord are not always easy to understand, but I count them as priceless gifts to me and my family. One can sense the deep feelings of the Lord when he spoke these words, For what doth it profit a man if a gift is bestowed upon him, and he receive not the gift? Behold, he rejoices not in that which is given unto him, neither rejoices in him who is the giver of the gift. I pray that the Lord will help us recognize even these unique gifts of suffering, give thanks for them, and always be found giving thanks to the giver of the gifts. The Lord sows a spiritual tapestry into all of our lives. How little does man understand the purposes of God? How true these words! For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. Great is his wisdom, marvelous are his ways, and the extent of his doings none can find out. President Thomas S. Monson has spoken recently of small hinges upon which the very history of our lives turn. A few weeks ago, my family and I discussed that thought, and we were deeply humbled to see how the Lord had directed all of our lives. One married son said, Had I not been the best man in my older brother's marriage, I would have missed meeting my future wife. His wife responded, If fifteen years earlier my family had not determined to move to Ecuador where they met your family, they would not have even been invited to the reception and thus perhaps I never would have met my husband-to-be. How does the Lord sow that kind of tapestry into our lives to bring about such wonderful blessings? Another son mentioned, Dad, had you not happened to be assigned to a particular state conference, you'd have not met my future wife and facilitated our meeting one another. His wife said, 
I just happened to go to that conference where my father presided that day instead of my own stake. And I must add, how was it that the president of the Quorum of the Twelve happened to assign me to that particular conference that weekend? My wife and I commented on the fact that had we not felt inspired to move from Arizona to Utah 35 years ago, much of what has just been said would not have happened. We concluded that in many ways our children's small hinges were dependent upon our small hinges as their parents. Of course, as Latter-day Saints, we know that all those events are not predestined, but it is the Lord's loving hand in our lives attempting to bless us with the very best that we can receive. Add to all of this the times the Lord has used daily experiences to mold you, your personality, to refine your attributes, to help you be more Christ-like. How complex it appears to man! How difficult it would be to influence all within one man's life in one day, let alone throughout his whole life. The orchestration that is going on among your whole family, the whole community, the whole world—could any man ever comprehend the love and the works of the Lord? I think not. Brigham Young once said, Every trial and experience you have passed through is necessary for your salvation. How blessed are we, my dear brothers and sisters, to recognize the Lord sowing this spiritual tapestry into our lives to produce a more Christ-like individual. I remind you of these words, Wherefore, brethren, seek not to counsel the Lord, but to take counsel from his hand. For behold, ye yourselves know that he counseleth in wisdom and in justice and in great mercy over all his works. Could any man think to counsel the Lord on anything, even having a small view of what has just been described? All of this causes me to feel deeply the need to always pray more fervently for the will of the Lord in my life. And whatever I ask, to be sure to condition it upon his holy, divine, all-knowing will. How great is the wisdom of God! How great is his love! I stand humbled in absolute awe of my Heavenly Father, his love for us, and his glorious plan of happiness. Brothers and sisters, the Lord will help us with our suffering. Prayerfully listen to these words. In all their afflictions, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them, and in his love and in his pity he redeemed them and bore them and carried them all the days of old. No trial or suffering will ever separate us from the love of God, said Paul the Apostle. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress? or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Men can bring suffering upon themselves. We've spoken of the suffering of the righteous, now a word regarding the suffering of the unrighteous. The Lord said, But if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I. Also, one could surely increase his suffering by not keeping the commandments of the Lord, couldn't he? 
The Lord said, Remember to sin no more, lest peril shall come upon you. And thus we see that except the Lord doth chasten his people with many afflictions, yea, except he doth visit them with terror and death and famine and with all manner of pestilence, they will not remember him. It ought to be easy to see in the case of those who sin that they bring much suffering and misery upon themselves by not keeping the commandments of the Lord. That is unfortunately true of some of us who know better, but who are either not keeping the commandments or just skirting on the edges of some. How many are suffering right now as a result of not keeping the word of wisdom, not only physically but spiritually, and being alienated from the Lord? How many other evil sins, such as robbery, abuse, or immorality, and thereby great suffering, result from someone not obeying the word of wisdom? What great blessings, for example, are promised to those who obey the Sabbath day, even the fullness of the earth? What a great loss spiritually and temporally come our way if we disobey? What about the suffering that comes from those who do not pay an honest tithe and offering, and therefore struggle with debt and financial hardship all the days of their lives? What about the suffering that results from dishonesty or involvement in risky financial endeavors, even loss of trust, divorce, and imprisonment? What great chastisement comes to one who disobeys the law of chastity and is involved in immodesty, petting, pornography, and fornication? He loses his faith, loses the spirit, and even could lose his membership in the kingdom of God. Maybe lastly, what suffering comes to one who skips his church meetings and avoids having a church calling? He not only loses offering, loses offering needed service, but also retards the growth and development of his own soul. Incorporated in all the laws of the Lord are blessings that will be yours when you keep them, and consequences causing you to suffer when you do not. When we disobey the Lord, we truly learn that wickedness never was happiness. In conclusion, here are a few suggestions on how to cheerfully suffer tribulation in the Redeemer's name. 1. Keep the commandments of the Lord with exactness. By so doing, you will avoid the suffering of the wicked and reap the blessings the Lord has promised to the obedient. 2. Endeavor to see more fully the Lord's hand in your life and the lives of those around you. The Lord loves you. Each day he adds to the beautiful spiritual tapestry being sewn into your life if you allow him to do so. 3. When faced with adversity, trial, or suffering, do your best to increase your faith in the face of the trial. Many of less faith, when faced with a serious trial, become angry, weaken their faith, and thereby struggle and suffer more. Perhaps the real test of your faith is how to increase your love and your faith when trials come your way. 4. Be patient. Wait on the Lord. Plead fervently for understanding and the ability to endure. Remember, we are not to counsel Him. He will counsel us. Be patient, trust in him for that which you do not know, and you will come to know much more. You will feel more profoundly of his personal love for you. Remember the words, even this will pass.
and the sacred words, The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 5. Do not be discouraged along the way. My young friends, the devil delights in discouraging people and causing them to feel inadequate, unworthy, unneeded, and unloved. Discouragement is a tool of the devil. He uses much of our suffering and misery to bring about discouragement and thus fulfill his purpose. May I say with a smile, cheer up, pray, read in the scriptures, bear your testimony, sing, express love to God and to others, serve, obtain a priesthood blessing if need be, and do away with the discouragement, the devil's influence upon you. And lastly, number six, humble yourself and repent of your personal sins. Humility before the Lord, a broken heart and a contrite spirit, truly seem to be the offering and sacrifice required of the Lord. The peace of the Spirit will then rest upon you, and the love of God will fill your soul. Well, brothers and sisters, let us return to where we began. Where is God in all of the suffering that is going on in the world? I testify of a certainty of His loving involvement. He uses trying circumstances for his purposes to develop true disciples of Christ, even as Zion people. I express gratitude for the Lord's hand upon me through the years. He has answered all of my prayers, even though at times I had no idea what his purpose was, nor perhaps still do. He has blessed me with many wonderful days more of those than difficult days of suffering and despair. And yet, even in those difficult days, I have felt the Lord reach out to me, felt the darkness disperse, and felt his personal love fill my very soul. I bear witness that he is a God of love. He does love his children in spite of what many in the world may think. I bear testimony that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient for all men. May God bless us to be more humble, more repentant, more filled with faith, more trusting, more loving to one another and to him. This is his work. This is the true Church of Jesus Christ. The Church and the fullness of the gospel have been restored. Living apostles and prophets of the Lord Jesus Christ walk the earth in our day. Of these things I humbly bear testimony in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Moving On Despite Our Trials. We've just heard from Jean R. Cook. After the break, we'll return with Jennifer Pastenbaugh for When Your Bow Breaks. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Moving On Despite Our Trials. Next is Jennifer Pastenbaugh, University Librarian at BYU at the time of this address, titled When Your Bow Breaks. In the summer of 2001, I was serving as a counselor in the Stake Young Women's Presidency in the Stillwater, Oklahoma Stake. For various reasons, the stake presidency had come to us and asked us to plan for the next year's girls' camp at a state park within our stake boundaries. 
The park we ended up selecting had fewer affordable recreational opportunities than our previous location. We considered a variety of new activities, each with their pluses and minuses. As a Girl Scout leader in Stillwater, I had learned that the local Girl Scout Council provided a two-day course through the National Archery Development Association that gave the participants the training to be able to teach basic principles of archery and run a safe archery range. Obtaining the certification would give us access to a substantial discount through which we could purchase simple recurve bows and arrows. Through personal contacts at the local university, I had determined that we could borrow ethafoam targets and other basic equipment we would need to create a fun and safe experience for our young women. The girls loved this new activity, and even after I was released from the presidency, I received an annual invitation to attend girls' camp to run the archery program. The so-called fee for attending the archery training was that I had my name added to a list of adults certified as Level 1 archery instructors who were willing to be called upon to run the archery range at various Girl Scout camp locations throughout the council. When it came time to renew my certification, I was asked to consider going through the Level 2 training, which meant that I would be able to teach the two-day Level 1 course that I had previously taken. The Level 2 training was much more in-depth, focusing in greater detail on various equipment options, physical properties of various types of bows and arrows, refinement of shooting technique, and even how to use a bowstring jig, a device which allows you to make a custom bowstring. About the time I finished the Level 2 training and passed the written exam, I had started rereading the Book of Mormon. With all of my newly acquired archery knowledge, when I came to the account of Nephi's bow breaking in 1 Nephi chapter 16, I realized for the first time what a truly remarkable story this is. Like much of the Book of Mormon narrative, it is full of understatement. Because none of us here, well, probably none of us, is hunting with a bow as the sole means of providing dietary protein for ourselves or our families, and because none of us is currently living in the extreme environment of the Arabian Peninsula, we take the brief details of the story at their simple face value. But doing so would mean not fully appreciating a number of important teachings found in these verses. While the book of 1 Nephi is probably the most read, or at least the most often read, book in the Book of Mormon, I want to recall for you the details of this particular story. Nephi had just declared hard things to his brothers, which included the truth that no unclean thing can enter the kingdom of God. This happened while Lehi and his family had been dwelling in the Valley of Lemuel, and Nephi's words caused his brothers to humble themselves before the Lord. Following this occurrence, Lehi found the Liahona outside the door of his tent. With direction from the Liahona, the family took their tents and departed into the wilderness, traveling in nearly a south-southeast direction and pitching their tents, first in a place they called Shazer, which has the meaning of a place with trees, and then on to other fertile parts of the wilderness. Nephi and his brothers began to hunt with their bows and arrows and stones and slings and were successful in obtaining the wild game the large family needed to survive. Given the various hardships they had endured during their years in the wilderness, 
This must have seemed like an especially sweet time. There was plenty of food, and however briefly, Laman and Lemuel were not murmuring. The point of this story is not to think that hard times are just around the bend when you are experiencing a time of plenitude and blessings, but it is interesting that we frequently find that pattern in the scriptures and in our lives. In an October 1995 General Conference address, Elder Richard G. Scott taught, quote, Just when all seems to be going right, challenges often come in multiple doses applied simultaneously. When those trials are not consequences of your disobedience, they are evidence that the Lord feels you are prepared to grow more. He therefore gives you experiences that stimulate growth, understanding, and compassion, which polish you for your everlasting benefit. To get you from where you are to where He wants you to be requires a lot of stretching, and that generally entails discomfort and pain. End quote. So in continuing our story with Nephi, tragedy, and I don't use this word lightly or facetiously, struck and Nephi's steel bow broke. Whether it was from years of use, for example, a typical modern bow can be shot as many as 100,000 times without losing power when the bow is drawn back, or from corrosion from the high temperature and high humidity in the area, or for some other cause, the result was the same. Nephi had lost the means whereby he could provide for his family. Not only must his heart have been heavy because he and his family were tired and hungry, but Laman and Lemuel and the sons of Ishmael began to murmur exceedingly against the conditions they found themselves in, against the Lord, and it seems especially against Nephi. The fact that their own bows had lost their springs, whether from being overshot or from the sheer laziness of not unstringing them at the end of the day, and releasing the tension on the bow, and the fact that they had done nothing to replace these crucial tools, seems lost on them. As Elder Neil A. Maxwell said, commenting on this story, quote, One can almost hear them saying, Let Nephi do it. This trip was his idea. End quote. We are told that even Father Lehi, who is now old and weary, started to murmur against the Lord. Truly Nephi, a faithful and devoted servant of the Lord, was in a dire predicament, or as Elder Scott has described, the Lord felt Nephi was prepared to grow more. At this point in the story, Nephi did something that was really remarkable. He recorded, quote, And it came to pass that I, Nephi, did make out of wood a bow, and out of a straight stick an arrow. Wherefore I did arm myself with a bow and arrow, with a sling and with stones, and I said unto my father, Whither shall I go to obtain food? End quote. Not only did Nephi not give in to the all-too-human pattern of complaining and feeling sorry for himself, but he also did a number of remarkable, even miraculous things. First, he located the only kind of wood in that desert region that would have been suitable for making a bow. Second, with no previous skill as a bow maker, he crafted a bow that was strong and balanced enough that he could shoot moving game with some degree of accuracy. Third, he fashioned a bowstring that was compatible with the strength of the wooden bow. And fourth, he made one arrow that was straight enough that it could be shot accurately and sharp enough that it would kill game. As a further aside, somehow Nephi would have had to know but he now needed a longer arrow than for his old steel bow with its tighter draw. 
As Hugh Nibley observed, quote, though it sounds simple enough when we read about it, it was almost as great a feat for Nephi to make a bow as it was for him to build a ship, end quote. Like Nephi, each one of us is likely to experience the breaking of a bow, a major life challenge that has all the makings of a personal or family disaster, or that has all the makings of an opportunity to grow. In an April 2009 General Conference address, President Henry B. Eyring said, quote, With all the differences in our lives, we have at least one challenge in common. We all must deal with adversity. End quote. So what then does this extraordinary story from the Book of Mormon teach us about dealing with the trials and adversity that are part of this mortal experience? I think there are at least six principles we can learn from this story. Given what we already know about Nephi from the first 15 chapters of 1 Nephi, even though we are not told explicitly that Nephi prayed, it seems inconceivable that in this very challenging situation, Nephi would not have turned to Father in Heaven in prayer. Prior to this occurrence, prayer is mentioned in connection with a number of major events. First, Nephi knew about the vision of the destruction of Jerusalem that Lehi had received, a revelation that came as a result of Lehi's prayer. Second, in response to prayer, Nephi's bands were loosed after his brothers bound him during the journey back into the wilderness with Ishmael and his family. And third, Nephi understood that the vision of the tree of life his father had received could only be understood by inquiring of the Lord, that is, by praying. When prayer is a consistent part of our daily lives and we have learned to listen for and to answers to our prayers, we develop confidence in that process. With the still limited preparation Nephi had at that point, perhaps it would have been too much for him to undertake a project as big as building a boat for his family to sail to the new world in without having additional experiences to strengthen his testimony of the power of prayer. Certainly, it was not just a good guess on Nephi's part that allowed him to make a bow of hunting caliber, but rather divine inspiration that came out of a very regular pattern of calling upon Heavenly Father in prayer. My guess is that in praying, Nephi did not ask that a new bow, fully formed and ready to solve his problem, be dropped into his lap. If that had been his strategy, it would have been much easier to have just asked to have fresh game delivered to the door of his family's tent. We know from Nephi's account in chapter 11 that he was allowed to see the same vision of the tree of life given to Lehi after, quote, pondering in his heart Lehi's words. One way of looking at pondering is as the intensive preparation required for meaningful prayer. It seems likely that following some pondering, Nephi's words weren't the sometimes rote words we use, bless me too, as in bless me to make a bow, but instead the more thoughtful question— what can I do too, as in what can I do to make a bow that will allow me to hunt the game my family needs to survive? Once Nephi had communed with Father in Heaven in a humble pleading prayer and spent time listening to his answer, Nephi had to get up off his knees and act. His family was hungry and temporarily at rest in an area with few alternative food choices to the game he caught. There was not the time for the self-indulgent luxury of self-pity or inaction. He found nab wood, the only wood in the area of the Arabian Peninsula thought suitable for making a bow, and fashioned a bow out of it. 
Through inspiration, or through actually trying to use the arrows from his steel bow, he realized that he needed a longer wooden arrow. Then somehow he was inspired to make a straight wooden arrow with a head of sufficient lethalness that he could return to feeding his family. His willingness to go and do, as he had previously demonstrated in obtaining the brass plates from Laban, was again manifest in the effort he must have put forth to craft a new bow. In my own family, I have an example of someone who repeatedly went and did, even when wallowing in self-pity might have seen the more natural course. I am so grateful for her example. My great-grandmother, Flora Mae Walker, was born in Hillsborough, Texas, on August 14, 1899. Although I spent a fair amount of time around her while I was growing up, and she died shortly after my 27th birthday, I knew surprisingly little about her life while she was living. As a child, she was the grandmother who was never too busy to read to me, who invited me to spend the weekend with her at her third-floor walk-up apartment in Baltimore, and who had me work jigsaw puzzles with her. In her later years, I would visit her in the nursing home occasionally when I returned to Maryland, but by this point she had severe dementia, and the visits were for me, not her. There was nothing in my youthful interactions with her that would have led me to believe that she had had a life filled with adversity. She was the third child of Leonard Newman Walker and Mary B. Reinhardt. When she was born, her father was in jail, having been charged with committing arson. Although I had always been told that her mother had died in childbirth, her cousin and I are now pretty certain from research that we've done that her mother abandoned her, leaving her in the care of the doctor who delivered her and the doctor's wife. Flora May was fortunate in that her father's sisters later took her into their homes, but she moved around with a great deal of frequency, sometimes living with her exonerated father and sometimes not. When she was 17, she met and married Dr. Playford Rush, a young widowed physician who had come to Texas on assignment with the U.S. Public Health Service. Although doctors did not enjoy the level of income then that they have today, I'm sure she thought this marriage was securing her future. About a year later, Playford was sent to Camp Merritt, New Jersey, where he was assigned to run a hospital for soldiers with Spanish influenza and other ailments and to provide for their needs before they were shipped off to Europe to fight in the Great War, World War I. Flora May was pregnant with twin daughters when she and Playford contracted the Spanish flu in October 1918. While an estimated 20 to 50 million people died worldwide in this pandemic, Playford was one of only three public health service physicians who succumbed. Flora May survived, but she was a 19-year-old widow living 1,200 miles from her family and ready to give birth to twin daughters. From public health service documents at the National Archives, I learned that she had to file a petition to receive any type of survivor benefits and was asked to prove that her deceased husband had contracted the Spanish flu as a result of caring for sickened soldiers. Only a few days before she gave birth to the twins, the panel that reviewed her petition granted her Playford's death benefit. For the next few years, she lived with family in the Houston area and with Playford's family in western Maryland. Then more tragedy befell her. Flossie, one of the twins, died from diphtheria when she was 18 months old. The other twin, my grandmother Marjorie Rush, survived. Flora May remarried in 1923 and had two more children. On Christmas Eve 1935, when the two younger children had the measles, her second husband went out to get medicine and never returned. Surely her bow had broken. 
at least for the third time. And yet she went and did, perhaps because she was left with few other choices. At various points, due to economic necessity, my grandmother, Marjorie, lived away from Flora May with other family members. Later, during World War II, Flora May secured a night job working at the Bendix Radio Factory in Towson, Maryland, where they made military aviation equipment. Almost unbelievably, to save the streetcar fare of a dime each way from her Baltimore apartment, she walked the 16-mile round trip. I didn't mention that she was born with a type of congenital hip dysplasia so that she walked with a limp her entire life, making this five-day-a-week trip on foot in the humid heat of summer and the damp cold of winter on the mid-Atlantic seaboard a special challenge. Just as Nephi learned, for Flora May, the only way to get a new bow was to do the hard work of making one. Dennis L. Largy, in a 1991 Sperry Symposium address, observed, quote, Instead of murmuring, Nephi simply went to work and made another bow. Murmuring wastes time, lengthens one's journey, and hardens one's heart. God may not always stop bows from breaking, but he does help in the construction of new ones, end quote. If I had been Nephi and had been able to successfully fashion a new bow and arrow, I think my thought would have been, if I was smart enough to do this, I can certainly figure out where the game is that I should hunt. And yet Nephi, ever humble, did not do that. He returned to his father, his priesthood leader, and sought his guidance in the matter. Note the interesting pattern that first he prayed, second he acted on the revelation that he received, and third he turned to his priesthood leader for further counsel. One of the great challenges that each of us face in this life is developing spiritual self-reliance. I have found, and Nephi's story suggests, that we are most prepared to receive counsel from priesthood leaders when we have first communed with Heavenly Father and acted on the inspiration we have obtained. After Nephi made a new bow and a single arrow, he returned to his father's tent and asked him to inquire the Lord where he should go to hunt. In answer to this prayer, the Lord told Lehi to look upon the ball and behold the things which are written. In our day, that ball, the Liahona, has been likened to the scriptures. Although our natures may be to lean to our own understanding and want to be dismissive of divine writ when we are facing great challenges, it is frequently then that scripture does hold the answer to dealing with adversity. On July 7, 2011, four years ago today, I was diagnosed with stage 2 invasive ductile carcinoma, a common form of breast cancer. Even though my mother's mother had died from the same type of cancer and my mother had had the same diagnosis as mine two years previously, I was in shock. I thought this might be something that I would deal with in my late 60s, as they had, but I wasn't even 50. In the space of one phone call, I went from someone that I would have considered to be very healthy to someone that was facing a major health challenge. My bow had broken. One of the key impressions that I had during the time immediately following this diagnosis and trying to determine what my options were was to redouble my scripture study. My initial reaction to the strong prompting was, I am not going to find the cure for cancer or the name of the surgeon I should go to by reading the scriptures. Yet as I acted on this feeling and, and read, I received very clear impressions about what I should do and who would be the best to help me in my particular situation. 
I was so focused on the needs of my body, but I learned that the needs of my spirit were every bit as great, if not greater. After extensive surgery, it was determined that due to my family history, an aggressive treatment plan was needed, and the best course of action would be a number of rounds of chemotherapy, followed by more surgery. About 10 days after my first treatment, my hair started to fall out by the handful, my bones ached with a flu-like intensity, and I started to experience the neuropathy, the numbness in my fingers and toes, that would last far beyond the chemotherapy treatments. Although I had tried to prepare mentally myself against it, a certain amount of self-pity set in. About this time, it was Fall 2011 General Conference. As I tuned in to the first session, I remember praying that there would be something said that would help me in my current situation. In that Saturday morning session, the very first talk was given by Elder Richard G. Scott on the power of Scripture. In this wonderful address that seemed to be given just for my personal benefit, he stated the following, quote, Scriptures can calm an agitated soul, giving peace, hope, and a restoration of confidence and one's ability to overcome the challenges of life. They have potent power to heal emotional challenges when there is faith in the Savior. They can accelerate physical healing. Scriptures can communicate different meanings at different times in our life according to our needs. A scripture that we may have read many times can take on nuances of meaning that are refreshing and insightful when we face a new challenge in life." Again, my attention was turned to the scriptures, but this time as a source of accelerated physical healing, as a way of making a new bow. Thinking about what we know from Nephi, it is difficult to imagine him whining or complaining as he petitioned Heavenly Father for his help. It is harder still to imagine that he would not have offered a prayer of thanksgiving when he was again able to feed his family. Elder Neil A. Maxwell eloquently stated, quote, Broken bows litter the landscapes of our lives, representing yesterday's frustrations. These were real enough at the moment. Dotting the same landscape, however, are many more reminders of blessings than of discarded broken bows. May we have the eyes to see that which an outside auditor would surely see as he counts our blessings. End quote. We, too, can choose to be grateful regardless of our circumstances, even when our bows have broken. We can receive the calm assurance that our Father in Heaven loves us and is giving us an opportunity to grow. In an April 2014 General Conference address, President Dieter F. Uchtdorf counseled, quote, We can choose to be grateful no matter what. This type of gratitude transcends what is ever happening around us. It surpasses disappointment, discouragement, and despair. It blooms just as beautifully in the icy landscape of winter as it does in the pleasant warmth of summer. Being grateful in times of distress does not mean that we are pleased with our circumstances. It does mean that through the eyes of faith we look beyond our present-day challenges. This is not a gratitude of the lips but of the soul. It is a gratitude that heals the heart and expands the mind. True gratitude is an expression of hope and testimony. It comes from acknowledging that we do not always understand the trials of life but in trusting that one day we will." Thinking back to my own health challenge, it would be difficult to honestly feel gratitude for it. Yet I remember feeling a tremendous amount of gratitude in knowing that Heavenly Father was personally mindful of my situation, as shown by a nearly continuous stream of tender mercies that happened throughout that ordeal. 
of supportive phone calls from out-of-town friends that I hadn't heard from in years, of meals that just showed up at my house, and of thoughtful acts of service rendered by family, ward members, neighbors, and co-workers. When Nephi's bow broke, his life and the life of his family hung in the balance. What he needed was a miracle in order to find a solution. On LDS.org, a miracle is defined as, quote, an extraordinary event caused by the power of God, end quote. It is interesting that Nephi, Laman, and Lemuel had seen many of the same extraordinary events caused by the power of God, but only Nephi recognized them for the miracles they were. From June 2013 through December 2014, I had the privilege of receiving weekly missionary emails written by Emily Lewis, a BYU student who served in the Australia-Adelaide mission. Sister Lewis frequently concluded her emails with the advice to, quote, remember to look for the miracles every day, end quote. Initially, I was a little put off by this. However, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that in looking for miracles, we demonstrate to Heavenly Father that we are open to and have faith in His power to cause extraordinary events in our own lives and the lives of others. Nephi had the kind of faith required for a miracle, to build a working bow from the very limited materials at hand, and to successfully hunt the game his family needed for their very survival. We can trust in Heavenly Father that the growth we experience at the point our bows break will bring the miracle of blessings previously unimagined. Sometimes the evidence of such miracles may take time to recognize— And thinking back to my great-grandmother, Flora Mae Walker, I am sure that she had days and nights of despair, but I consider her posterity, daughters who had had happy and long marriages of over 60 years, grandchildren and great-grandchildren who have made loving homes and had professional success, and even a few great-great-grandchildren who are pursuing excellent educational opportunities, such as those found at Brigham Young University. And I think, surely this is a miracle sprung out of adversity. I think back to the health news I received four years ago today, and never could I have imagined in that moment, or even the year that followed, that I would be standing here today having this opportunity to be the campus devotional speaker or serving as a university librarian at BYU. How could I fail to see that as a miracle? President Thomas S. Monson wisely observed, quote, our most significant opportunities will be found in the times of greatest difficulty, end quote. As we pray, act upon the revelation we receive, counsel with our priesthood leaders, faithfully study the scriptures, feel gratitude in our circumstances, and expect miracles, we, like Nephi of old, will be able to make a new bow when inevitably ours breaks. In the language of the Doctrine and Covenants, we will be able to, quote, come off conqueror, end quote. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Moving On Despite Our Trials, with thoughts from Jean R. Cook and Jennifer Pastenbaugh. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.